3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday, the 17th of January, 2023. My name is Fong, and in the studio today, we've got Jasmine, Carnegie, and Ivka. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Morning. Hello. Welcome back to... Radio, it's our first live show for the year. How's everyone feeling? Yeah, good. It's exciting. It's nice to be back. Yeah. Anyone have any exciting summer plans that want to share with everyone <laughs> listening today? I found a really nice watering hole. I didn't find it. I came across it. Um, uh, the Plenty Gorge. Oh, okay. Yeah. Apparently, yeah, you can swim in it. Yeah, really nice. Um, you're just like... I don't know. I've been really into freshwater swimming. Mm. Where mm. is it? Um, in uh, near Eltham, half an hour away. Big freshwater. You can sit on the riverbank. Amazing. Have a beer. It's nice. That mm. sounds really lovely. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the beaches tend to be so packed at this mm. time of year, so it's nice to find. Oh, it's so beautiful. Gems like that. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Anyone else got any exciting summer plans they want to share? This is like show and tell. <laughs> <laughs> We're back at school. Um, not not particularly. Maybe just um try and see some live music this month, mm. I think. That would be nice. Yeah. And um we went to Phillip Island over the new year, which was spectacular and not busy, weirdly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really nice. Beaches are spectacular. That's always so nice when yeah, it's not super crowded, um, especially because we've had such lovely weather or really warm, <laughs> really warm weather, actually. <laughs> lovely Maybe, for some. Yeah, too, like warm for, <laughs> too warm for others. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Um, we've got a big show to start off the year. Um, Ivka, what are we starting off with this morning? Uh, we're going to share some excerpts from the Women's Rights at Work conference that happened at the end of 2022. So we'll actually share two of those throughout the show. Uh, one first up at 7.15 and then another at 7.45. Great. And then around uh, 7.25, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sonia um, Srinivasan, who is um, an academic GP registrar, and uh, she's going to be on the show to talk about this report that um, she worked on looking, looking into the limited access to um, public abortion services in this country, which will be super interesting. And a bit of a theme on the show this morning at about 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Joe Terry, who is a midwife and a childbirth educator based in Nam. And she'll be joining us to talk about a few recent studies into midwifery and childbirth in Australia and the impacts they're having on women and birthing people. And we'll finish out the show with a speech from the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, um, which was held on the 17th of December. 
Awesome. Well, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Stay locked to Three CR. Welcome back to Three CR uh, Breakfast. Um, here are the news headlines for today. So the first headline is from India. Uh, Last Sunday, over 2,000 people marched in Delhi's first Pride March in three years. Marriage equality isn't legal in India, and the current government has been quite vocal in opposing it. Following the Supreme Court's 2018 judgment to decriminalise gay sex, uh, Modi's government warned that uh, judges should not change other aspects of Indian law, such as the right to marriage. At the moment, there are four couples um, in the middle of a lawsuit before the Supreme Court asking for same-sex marriage to be legal and for their unions to be acknowledged as legal. They're being backed by a former attorney general and an openly gay lawyer. So um, things are looking up, but it is probably a long road to um, any real change. The controversial release of more than a million tonnes of water from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant will begin in northern spring or summer, Japan's government has said, a move that sparked anger among local fishing communities and countries in the region. The decision comes more than two years after the government approved the release of the water, which will be treated to remove most radioactive materials what will still contain tritium, a natural occurring radioactive form of hydrogen that's technically difficult to separate from water. Oxfam has released a report um, that has coincided with the mm, annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, um, and it's reported that the world's top 1% grabbed nearly two-thirds of the $42 um, trillion in new wealth created since 2020. Um, The share was almost twice as much money as the amount obtained by the bottom 99% of the world's population. Um, This is according to Oxfam's report called Survival of the Richest. Um, Billionaire fortunes are increasing by $2.7 billion a day, while at least 1.7 billion workers now live in countries where inflation is um, outpacing wages. At the same time, half of the world's billionaires live in countries with no inheritance tax for direct descendants, um, which Oxfam Oxfam says that um, it's putting them on track to pass on $5 trillion to their heirs. Um, Oxfam said that a 5% tax on the world's multimillionaires and billionaires could raise $1.7 trillion a year, which is enough to lift 2 billion people out of poverty. Massive flooding in Western Australia may have left hundreds of people homeless, bringing the region's pre-existing overcrowding crisis into sharp relief, local residents have said. An estimated 100 homes across the Kimberley were feared uninhabitable in the wake of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie, according to... According to Tyrone Gastone, the chief executive of Kimberley Land Council, the peak Indigenous body in the region, said that many people are living in multi-generational homes or with extended family and the extent of the potential homelessness crisis is immense, he said. There has been a big push um, for insulation to be regulated in all rental properties in this country, as research shows that some people um, are suffering through temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius in their homes for extended um, periods in summer. Um, Many of the hottest homes are those who um, are those of people who live in 
uh, social housing, um, with some residents even forced to go into debt to buy air conditioners or to hose down their houses to stay cool. So, um, a lot of uh, so the unions have called for homes to be assessed before being rented. Um, currently, the ACT is uh, leading the leading state in terms of insulation requirements. From April this year, private rentals and public housing properties will begin having um, will begin to have uh, ceiling insulation um, fitted in their properties. The Greens First Nations Advisory Group has laid out its conditions for supporting the voice to Parliament, saying it must be subject to treaty negotiations with the government. Pending further negotiations with the government, the Greens are holding out on explicitly supporting the looming referendum, wanting further progress on all three elements outlined in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Truth, Treaty and Voice. Uh, Just ahead of Invasion Day next week, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service is holding an Invasion Day webinar um, that's being hosted on Tuesday the 23rd of January from 12.45 to 2.15pm. There'll be a list of um, speakers, I'm sure, on their website, um, including uh, Sissy Austin. Uh, If you'd like to register for the event, you can go to the VALS website or the Instagram account or check our show notes later this morning. And finally, Vic Forest has resumed logging in Wombat State Forest despite a court order. In November 2022, the Supreme Court of Victoria ruled that Vic Forest was not allowed to log in areas that were known to contain greater gliders, specifically East Gippsland, um, finding that they had not conducted adequate surveys for wildlife and required that they observe um, the precautionary principle, meaning that if there was a chance that there may be endangered species present, extensive surveys needed to be conducted. Um, Despite that, logging has resumed, um, so we'll be following what happens with that story here on 3CR. Those have been the news headlines for today the 17th of January. We're going to play a song for you now. Uh, This is Cam Cope's uh, track, The Opener, and it's from their 2018 album, How to Socialise and Make Friends. See 
join us at midday on Friday the 20th of January for the Tanaminawai and Hina commemoration at the corner of Franklin Street and Victoria Street in Melbourne at the Tanaminawai and Hina monument. It's a two-hour ceremony, begins at midday. The first hour is broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. We have a bevy of interesting guest speakers. At 1pm, we will walk silently to what we believe is their burial site in the Queen Victoria markets. I encourage you to bring your children and friends to commemorate the hanging of Tanaminoe and Melbourne for actively resisting the colonisation process. See you there. We're going to share a couple of excerpts from the Women's Rights at Work conference on today's show, first shared by Annie McLaughlin on Stick Together. First up, we hear from Hessen Jeong from the Migrant Workers Centre. Hessen does research and policy work advocating for migrant workers and shows how migration policy is an industrial issue. My name is Hessen and I do the research and policy work at the Migrant Workers Centre and a very brief introduction to the Migrant Workers Centre. We're a non-profit organisation based here in Carlton and we are dedicated to advocating for migrant workers' workplace rights. And uh, what we um, usually do is um, uh, representing all workers who were born overseas and working in Australia. However, unfortunately, most of the people who come to our center are people on temporary visas. And we have a proof, we, uh, we have done research and there is a significantly, um, statistically significant correlation between the uh, one's visa type, the, the, especially the type of visa you come with uh, when you first arrive in Australia and their experience of uh, exploitation in this country. So we know for a fact that settlement right is an industry right. So um, today we, uh, I'm trying to um, tell you uh, is about um, our experience, a little bit of uh, the stories that um, women migrant workers have shared with us and uh, what we have learned so far. Um, you know, as part of the, the campaign for settlement rights, we do annual, um, annual surveys and at the end of the survey we have this question, uh, would you like to talk to um, me <laughs> and uh, many people say yes, and uh, you know I get back to them and have a, like one hour uh, Zoom meeting, and uh, I, I meet amazing people through this, and uh, there are so many interesting stories that I can share with you. But let me um, share a once more story from an engineer who was from the Philippines. So this Filipino engineer, she said, I worked in Qatar for seven years and I loved working there as an engineer, but Qatar didn't have a permanent migration program. That's when my migration agent advised me, hey, go to Australia and get a, a temporary regional visa and there you can build a more secure future. So in Australia, I came and no one was giving me a job. Although I was already registered as an engineer in Australia, I ended up taking a job as draft person. A draft person is someone who prepares drawings and supports engineers. I am paid significantly less than what I used to earn in Qatar. At work, there are four engineers and three drafts person, and all the three draft persons are migrant workers, whereas the engineers are Australian born citizens. 
and two of the engineers are not even engineers. They are students with no experience, and they are yet to finish their degrees. I have a master's degree, in addition to seven years of professional experience as an engineer, and I have to work under their instructions. And I am the only woman, and only Asian woman, that is, in the workplace. So maybe that's why I am not assigned proper tasks. I ask for on-site tasks, but they only take the other two drafts persons who are men uh, to sites. So uh, when I worked in Qatar, which is a Muslim country, I never experienced discrimination at work based on my gender. <laughs> I could go everywhere, do everything I was qualified for. So in my experience so far, Qatar is better than Australia for women migrant workers. That's why I am going back to Qatar at the end of this year. I have an Australian-born partner here, and I'm taking him with me to Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's no secret that Australia's temporary migration programs uh, contribute to perpetuating discrimination and exploitation against migrant workers. And uh, what this engineer story tells us is that uh, exploitation against migrant workers has gendered aspect to it. So many women workers, they um, are subject to unfair treatment at work because of the prejudice and stereotypes <coughs> about women, migrant women. And uh, interestingly enough, we don't hear uh, often about these kind of stories. The media, when they report about migrant workers, they focus on you know, horrendous stories of exploitation. Oh, this person was paid like this many dollars an hour, or like something happened to this person and that, that person died. Or, you know. And they, um, because they uh, look for those horrendous stories, they, they tend to cover more men than women. And um, so women make rarely headlines, but um, you know, only when there is sexual harassment involved, they will make he headlines. And unfortunately, at the Migrant Workers Center, we provide assistance to everyone, everyone but interestingly enough, so far, only 33% of the people who are making appointments with us are women. And Ondia, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> on the other hand, when I do the annual survey and the in-depth um, uh, follow-up interviews, the numbers are quite different. The people who um, participate in our annual surveys, 57% women, and the in-depth um, interviews, 67% are women. So how do I, uh, um, uh, how should I interpret this discrepancy? And um, I think. Women migrant workers, they experience workplace issues, of course the same rate or even higher rate um, than ma male migrant workers, but they are less motivated to speak up and defend their rights because it is so damn hard for them to find a job in the first place. So when they have an employment, uh, especially a secure one, they don't want to blow it up. And um, as we saw in the Filipino engineers' case, they also um, tend to interpret the issue 
more a personal and cultural issue. So she interpreted the, the case not in an, an industrial way, like she didn't talk to the union or she didn't, well, she didn't have any women colleagues, so there was no one to talk to. But um, um, instead of understanding it as a workplace issue, these women who are isolated um, and in male-dominant industries, they tend to th think it's a, a personal challenge to overcome. So um, still, there is silver lining. One thing <laughs> um, we can be sure of is that when women are approached, these women, they are more than willing to share their stories. They want to talk to us, and um, it, it means that uh, through proactive organizing, we can turn these um, experiences into an industrial issue, um, into something that we can all uh, work together against. So I think um, the conversation is a really key. And let me share with you another story, uh, which is a little bit more depressing. Um, uh, viewers a lot. Um, this story was uh, already covered by ABC. I helped them uh, talk to the worker. And the reason why this story was shared by ABC was because it has sexual harassment involved. Um, so um, this is a marketing manager. I came to Australia on a student visa. When I finished my degree, it was so difficult to find a job, but then I was so lucky to find an employer who was not only offering me a job, uh, but also a visa sponsorship. So I was so happy, but then real I realized that I was not so lucky after all. The boss would make me to stay late alone with him or um, ask me to accompany him on overnight business trips. And when I made excuses to refuse him, he would casually remind me about my visa oh. <laughs> or threaten me that I might lose the job. So I stayed at the job for four years because according to the current visa regulations, a permanent visa transition can be arranged only by my current employer who has the record of employment for years. So um, now that my permanent visa could be granted any time, uh, the boss started touching me, uh, and I was so embarrassed and scared. I went to police, but there was nothing I could do as there was no evidence witness. One morning, I was fired by a text message, and then the boss came to my place, made a scene yelling at me that I was not cooperative. I talked to a lawyer because I was about to lose both my job and years of effort towards settlement right in Australia. And my boss, uh, sorry, my lawyer, he negotiated with my boss and made the boss sign a deed stating that uh, he would keep me on the book for five more months uh, so that I could get my permanent visa in exchange for my silence about the sexual harassment. <laughs> The visa was really expected uh, one or two months later. However, the visa processing got delayed for no reason, and five months later, the boss reported my termination to the Home Affairs. So my temporary visa was canceled, a uh, permanent visa application was rejected. Now I am in the process of appealing those decisions. Uh, so, yep. Um, when it comes to migration policies, um, there is an old trick. Put the word skilled in front of everything, and then you can hush all those anti-immigrant uh, groups. 
for example, skilled migration, skilled occupation, skilled workers, then uh, people say suddenly, okay, it's okay to have some migrant workers um, coming to Australia. However, what people don't really understand is that when you put the word skilled, a lot of skilled migrant workers are under these kind of shackle to their um, the employer. They are um, bound to work only for that employer and they can only get permanent residency through that employer. So I have met so many migrant workers under uh, employer sponsorship they don't get lunch breaks, they don't um, get holidays, um, public holidays, and uh, they dare not defend their rights because they know that visa means livelihood for them. And also, um, this marketing manager just let us know that there's a ge very gender-specific specific implications when it comes to employer sponsorships. <coughs> So, employer sponsorship is an institution that fundamentally encroaches working people's rights and dignity because it gives the employer a comprehensive power over workers' livelihood. So we must fight against this institution that condone exploitation and violence against working people. And migration um, policy is an in industrial issue that we all need to work against. Thank you. That was Hessen Jiang from the Migrant Workers Centre talking at the Women's Rights at Work Conference at the end of 2022. Stay tuned to hear from Jamad Hersi from the Women of Colour Network, also speaking at the conference at 7.45am. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Regular listeners of our show would know that in the past 12 months, we have had many discussions about access to abortions and other reproductive services in this country, especially since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the US. Despite it being legal here in, the, here in Australia, there are still many limitations when it comes to accessing abortion advice and services in this country. Joining us on the show to discuss the lack of public abortion services is Dr. Sonia Srinivasan. Do Dr. Sonia Srinivasan is an academic GP registrar in the western suburbs of Melbourne. She has always had a special interest in women's reproductive health, which in her opinion sits at the intersection of medicine, politics and history. She started her women's health journey um, Sorry, she started her women's health journey uh, with isolating stem cells from placentae during her master's in Auckland and is now finishing her GP training and researching how to improve women's access to contraception and abortion in Australia. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Sonia. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, can you just tell us more about your role as an academic GP registrar for some of our listeners who might not understand what that means? Sure, yeah, it's a confusing phrase with a few different words. <laughs> a GP registrar is a doctor who's qualified from medical school who's finishing their specialty training to become a GP or a general practitioner. And the academic part means that as part of my training, I'm doing some additional research um, to become a doctor who's both a clinician as a GP and also a researcher with the university. Great, thank you so much for that. Um, so can you tell us more about the current obstacles uh, when it comes to seeking abortion services and advice in Australia? And uh, what are the major differences between access for people in, you know, let's say, metropolitan versus regional versus rural areas? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think in Australia we've generally been quite proud of abortion being legal, particularly when we compare to what's happened in the States. But what's emerging from research and stories from women is that there are lots of different barriers. And if you're not, as you mentioned, in a metropolitan area with uh, money to spare, abortion is not actually that easy to access. So usually when I think about barriers, there are five main barriers that tend to come up. The first one that's probably the easiest to relate to is financial barriers. So the vast majority of abortions in Australia are done in the private sector, which means that there can be a significant out-of-pocket cost. And for women who don't have lots of excess financial resources, that can be a really difficult decision to weigh up, a life-changing decision to have a baby or terminate a pregnancy. Um, And lots of women report borrowing money from family or friends to get that service that they need. You mentioned uh, metropolitan and regional. So geographical barriers are another huge one. In metro areas all across Australia, there are lots of services, sort of like all medical and health services, plenty concentrated in the major cities and far fewer in regional and rural areas. And that factors in a lot of time required for travel. So uh, if women are working and need to arrange childcare, um, some women need to travel hours or sometimes even days on road or air travel to get the service that they need. So that's a huge barrier. And factored into that is time, so the time taken for something that's really time critical. It's not something that can sort of be put on hold. An unplanned pregnancy is something that needs to be addressed by a patient and their doctor relatively quickly. So time is another huge barrier there. Um, At the clinic I work at, I work with a lot of refugee and asylum seeker patients, and that's really demonstrated to me how difficult and complex it is to navigate our health system, even for someone who might, like myself, who speaks English, I've lived here for eight years. Our health system is enormously complex, and if you come from a culturally and linguistically diverse group of people, English isn't your first language, you don't have connections to people who understand the health system, that's a huge barrier. Even to know that you can start with your GP and get help from your GP to find services, that requires a certain amount of knowledge depending on what country you've come from. That's a huge barrier I've noticed. And the last one would be, again, something we're familiar with, uh, maybe less so in Australia, but it's still present, is social stigma around abortion. So abortions, while recognised by the World Health Organisation as an essential right for achieving gender equality. But we know that with the history of legislation and in some states and territories only recently making abortion fully legalised, there's still a lot of social stigma that exists, both in the healthcare profession and in the general community around abortion. And um, there can be religious and conscientious objections amongst doctors. But in several states, doctors are still legally mandated to refer that patient elsewhere, even if they're not willing themselves to provide the abortion or refer for that. So that was a very long-winded introduction, but those are some of the main barriers that we find. Yeah, and just speaking to your last point there, Sonia, um, you know, that social stigma can really make it very difficult for people um, to access these services 
you know, because they feel shame around it. Um, and when in fact, you know, what we really want is the opposite where people can feel really open and free about, about seeking advice and, and services surrounding abortion and other reproductive services. So that's a huge one. I think that, um, yeah, even though, like you said, it's still, it's legal in this country. Um, that's a huge factor that's affecting, um, affecting everything from people accessing it to um, perhaps even funding and the availability of, of services. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the truth is that abortions are incredibly common. So our best available data suggests that one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. So everyone knows and loves the person who has had an abortion or who will have one at some point in their life. And so that. It's troubling that that stigma is so pervasive despite the fact that abortion is a common part of our society. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to turn to now the report that you co-authored called Utilising Health Pathways to Understand the Availability of Public Abortion in Australia. For listeners who don't know what Health Pathways is, um, could you tell us more about it and how this program assists GPs in providing support for people seeking abortion services? Yeah, absolutely. So when a patient presents to their GP for a problem, we'll often give patients a referral to get the particular healthcare service that they need. So in the public system, that's usually sent directly to the local public hospital. But GPs need to know if the hospital we refer to is going to provide the kind of care that our patient needs. For example, where I work in the western suburbs of Melbourne, I can refer my patients to the local public hospital for a broken arm or appendicitis or heart failure, but I can't refer my patients there to get an abortion if they have an unplanned pregnancy because the service isn't provided. So what Health Pathways is, is a searchable online system that tells us GPs which public hospitals in our geographical region provide what services to our patients. It helps keep GPs up to date on rapidly changing guidelines and processes that are local to our area, like, you know, for example, who currently qualifies for antivirals for COVID-19. That's a rapidly changing area. And so lots of GPs use this online system called Health Pathways every day. And so we wanted to know what kind of information was available on health pathways that related to public abortion. And so we had a look at each health pathway across Australia to find out what they had to say. And so what were some of the main findings that you discovered um, from from conducting this review? Hmm. The, The main finding was that nearly half of the health pathways that were included in the study had no publicly funded services for surgical abortion. And one third had no public services for medical abortion. So most of your listeners might know that there are two ways that uh, women can get a medical abortion, uh, sorry, an abortion in general in Australia. One is a medication, which is taken in the early part of pregnancy, two tablets that induces the abortion like a miscarriage. And the other is a surgical procedure that occurs over a couple of hours or less during the day. And so because we have so little data across Australia about the number of abortions that are done, where they're done, what they cost, we really know very little. 
Um, this was sort of a very small study, but possibly one of the first to review what the actual reality is with public service availability. And the reality was quite stark. We we talk about enjoying a universal healthcare system in Australia, but abortion doesn't appear to be a universally accessible service or right. So that was one of the main findings that was quite surprising. The other one was that the majority of services that did have publicly funded abortions, two-thirds of them, listed additional warnings around difficult access or how hard it would be to access the service. So that they had quotes like limited appointments available, consider private providers first before contacting the public service, those sorts of things. Really uh, directing to GPs to refer patients away from the public system and suggesting that public services should be considered only as a last resort. And so I think that reflects the challenge that GPs and patients are facing. Um, the reality is that public appointments are limited and we're asked to send patients to private services first and that's really hard when you know your patient is unlikely to be able to afford that. Yeah and you were saying earlier that here in Australia we tend to you know um, talk about our uh, universal healthcare system very positively but this Mm. just illustrates how um, how that's not true in in many cases, um, mm. and that you know having equitable access to healthcare in this country is is actually um, a major issue still. Um, mm. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, Sonia, this morning. But um, I just wanted to ask you one more question. Sure. Um, could you just quickly tell us um, what recommendations uh, were made, if any, following this particular review? Yes, lots of lots of recommendations mm-hmm. were made. <laughs> so the, the first one is that we need national collection and reporting on abortion data. We don't have that in Australia and even countries like the US, the CDC or Centers for Disease Control collects national abort- abortion data to understand what's happening. So that's really important. We need clear referral pathways for GPs to get the, their patients the healthcare they need in a timely manner. We need national guidelines for quality abortion care. So it's not a postcode lottery depending on where you live. So regardless of where you live and see a GP, women should be able to feel confident that they're going to get the abortion or the health care they need. We need more training and support for GPs to be able to provide medical abortion. That would make abortion much more accessible in regions where there isn't a surgical abortion service. And we need to to achieve all that. We really need commitment from state and federal governments to fund and implement an equitable abortion service. Um, And I'll just say quickly, there's currently a a government-senate inquiry into the barriers to achieving universal access to sexual and reproductive health information. And um, when that's happening, that means that members of parliament are currently looking into what the barriers are, which is a really important and exciting time for the government to prioritise that. So what listeners... mm, Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for for telling us about that. And um, we would love to have you back on the show to maybe look into that in a bit more detail. Um, But yeah, that's unfortunately all we have time for this morning, Sonia, but we would really love to thank you for taking the time out of your morning to speak to us today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. 
That was Dr. Sonia um, Srinivasan speaking to us just now about the lack of public services and information provided to people seeking abortion um, services and advice. To read the report, Utilising Health Pathways to Understand the Availability of Public Abortion in Australia, please refer to the 3CR Tuesday Breakfast website after the show. We'll be back with a song right after this message. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Jen Clower is a songwriter and performer living on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam, Melbourne. This track is the first single from their not-yet-released fifth album, I Am The River, The River Is Me. It's called Being Human.
That was Being Human by Jen Cloer. And if you liked that song, I highly recommend watching the video clip. It is beautiful. On 3CR program Stick Together, Annie McLaughlin shared excerpts from the Women's Rights at Work conference that happened at the end of 2022. We're going to replay Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colour Network and a CPSU member talking on the Solidarity with Women of Colour panel. I'm Jamad and I, I am from Somalia. I've lived here for 10 years, um, came here as an international student. So I work for the Victorian government. I, alongside with a lot of other women of colour, found ourselves in workplaces where, um, when I say workplaces, I'm talking about the public sector. Um, it's also in the private sector, uh, where we were treated differently, uh, whether that was dealing with currents um, or racial micro microaggressions or outright discrimination. What that looks like for women of colour is that you, it, it means dealing with that triple biases based on race, gender, religion, and all the other identities that, that comes with all POC people or, or WOC people. We also found out that there was a lack of insight and obliviousness to the newer senses of working with BIPOC people. And then we, what we also found was that eventually BIPOC people who were experiencing bullying, harassment, discrimination at work would have eventually either leave or if they decided to go through the informal, formal complaint systems, it came at the cost of their well-being or in the future towards their career progression. So organically, we found ourselves during lunch breaks, after work, I was listening to each other. Women coming together and sharing their bullying experiences by the boss or in the same workplace. And then organically built this safe space where frustrations, tears, stories were shared. And we also knew that we were like about 10 of us. So the work I'm about to share is also done by incredible co-founders, incredible women of color that are not here with me. So it's not my work um, alone. And so we, we developed this, we became essentially therapists. And then we're like, what are we gonna, and then we, so we decided to do something about it because we knew there were other women of color who didn't have the opportunity to come to us to share and let that out. So we're like, we need to do something about this. And, and we officially um, started this um, network called Victorian um, Public Sector Women of Color. Um, it's a staff-led collective, and it's run by and for self-identifying women of color. It was launched in 2019 and run by the by VPS volunteer staff. So volunteer, we're not paid. What I'm about to share is an incredible amount of it's incredible work network that we all do on top of our nine to five. Organically grew members, women of color members and allies, and so we've got about nearly 900 members. Um, yeah, since 2019. The aim of the network is to strive to create a safe and inclusive space that allows women of colour to better contribute and to f inform the development of programmes, policies that better meet the needs of uh, women of colour and also all of DPS staff um, to advocate and improve the DNI practices that exist across VPS and then also we targeted um, and it's championed and targeted people who are in leadership so that they could carry that voice. Uh, we've been able to gain visibility internally and externally 
um, across VPS. We've been able to develop a real safe space for women of color. Um, so there are two different safe spaces. There's one that is only for women of color where they can express their grievances, share tears, and then there's a space that is shared with allies. And for us, that was really important to, to, to separate because there is the potential or the risk of an individual woman unintentionally taking space. We want to make sure that women of color members feel comfortable before they can, you know, it took me a long time to sit here and talk to people. Um, so we, we need to, we, we recognize that we need to, we needed to do that. Um, with the impact is that we've been able to create local women of color network across departments. So your department of water, environment, DELP, uh, department of education, um, Victoria Police, it was the most recent one, it's been the hardest one, but it's, it's there, uh, Department of Justice, and they all sit under the, the VPS-wide Women of Color Network. We support them and we've supported them because we also recognize that each department, Women of Color, experience their own and that our experience wasn't the same as theirs, so we needed to harness that difference but also support. We have champions of the network. It was a very strategic move. Um, about seven to eight champions um, of the network and their role is to help us transform and embed mechanism for all sorts of things impacting women of color. Um, some of these champions are really in high positions, so like Gender Equality Commissioner, she's one of um, our champions. We meet regularly. We have deputy secretaries across the department who are champions, and we have we've approached them. They've been a support supportive of our work because um, they were they've recognised the need, and they some of them are women of colour. Um, we we do provide lead, leadership development and mentoring programs. A lot of networking, a lot of networking events for both allies and members. But we, the biggest work actually, what we have done was that the uh, DNI report, diversity and inclusion report. It was the first of ever its kind. It didn't exist, and this one was one that delved into the experiences of women of color. The survey asked questions around the questions that led to collecting the experiences of women of color. The, what we found out when we were setting up the network was that we had a lot of anecdotal stories. Stories that were anecdotal. That was true to us. To us. We knew it. Um, you gave an example of how that idiot who would change the meeting. Mm -hmm. it, that happened, it happened to me. I had a, a boss that were two of them that changed meeting times or would send me a meeting times five, before, five minutes before it happened and then would say, oh, she's not here. And then or one of my colleagues would look out for me. I was in a role where eight women left, no, seven women left and one man, um, one man of color, and then the seven women of um, both white women and women of color, um, two of them, left and no one, and they left because this, this guy bullied them. This, and, and no one did anything about it. And then I also walked in and then second week I was like what is happening was being left out um, was being told things like um, you didn't do your work if, when he sent me one case there were so many cases but I do remember one time that he sent me an, 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 a task something to do um, 10 minutes before it was supposed to be done and then within that 10 minutes we were walking into a meeting with a chairperson and then I was supposed to talk about it and then he would always throw me under the bus and be like oh Jamal I sent you that email and then 
this was second week. And then obviously I'm trying to be polite and also Somalis and Africans, we like to always, it was an older man, so like this thing about, you know, age and respect, and I do respect and it should be, but I had that and I was like, okay, don't say anything. And I'll pull him to the side after the meeting and be like, you sent me this meeting, this thing 10 minutes ago. There's no way I could have done this submission paper or like a, <laughs> a whole page. And then he'd be like, oh, oh I'm, I'm sure I sent you yesterday. He didn't. And then eventually I'll be like, I, call, I started calling him out in the meeting. I was like, no, you actually sent me 10 minutes ago. And if you wanted me to do something about it, I would prefer you to give it to me a week before, minimum three days. And then, and then everyone would be like, I, was, I became the angry black woman. And I was, like, I was like, I don't care anymore because first of all, you don't feed me or you pay my salary, but I'm like, you, I don't care. I'm like, I would rather choose me than be put through these horrendous feelings of like, feeling inept, feeling inadequate, feeling like, because yeah. we women, we always question yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So I would go into, into rooms and we'd be like, I've forgotten how to write. <laughs> <laughs> this report, this one, kind, one, one of a kind report, eventually put evidence-based evidence to all the anecdotal stories. Mm -hmm. So now the people that we were talking to in leadership, DEPSEX and all the directors can no longer say, or is it he say, she say. But like we ran, we ran two actually report, uh, uh, surveys. One was to do with recruitment retention and the, and the, the role that women of color were in. And classically, like it was very similar to also all women. They were always overqualified for the role they were in. Um, it was a fixed term, it was a precarious job, but also what it was all the women of color were leaving within six months, one year, because the workplace was very unsafe, culturally unsafe. And so we found evidence that all the stories that are being told, are actually now you could hold accountable, you could hold leaders accountable. So we put five recommendations. One of them was the whole of government um, cultural diversity strategy, strategy and action plan. Um, mandatory training and frameworks to improve cultural safety, intersectional data collection, because the, the data collection that we do in public sector or even in the private is quite, it's, it's quite poor. Um, the good thing was also the impact that we had was the, the Victorian government's response to the inquiry into um, the economic e equity for Victorian women picked it up, some of the recommendations that we did. I, I remember one of the recommendations was addressing challenges faced by women of color working in the public sector and developing strategies to address racism and discrimination in the public sector. CPSU did also the, the, the report, the women of color report, and also reiterated some of our work and some of our recommendations, as well as the, um, the Victorian Trades Hall Council submission on anti-racism. Um, they, they reiterated our report, our recommendations, and basically said, can you please pay them for the work that they're doing because they're doing you a favor, which was good. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, CPSU. I remember when we started the network, I'm a member of the CPSU, and then there are a lot, a lot of other allies and women of color who are members of CPSU, and that's how CPSU came to, to be about, and we approached them. They actually, we both approached each other, and they were recognizing that this was work that needed to be done. It was a gap, and then they were quite supportive and are still really supportive of the work that we do. So how did we get? How did we build solidarity, community, and network? Or what does that look like? Mm -hmm.
there is a safety in numbers. We have found incredible white women who recognized that they needed to be worked on in this space, were genuine and had the same visions and were genuine about um, the work that we were doing and wanted to come and support. Um, there's also a strength in vulnerability, a sense of acknowledging that as white women, white people, you are part of a system that perpetuates the status quo for women of color. Mm -hmm. and I know that a lot of the times it's not intentional. The systems and structures that are in Australia are not built for people of color or BIPOC people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I experience any discrimination or racism, like I go, of course I am. Like look at the foundation of the country, like of course. There were a lot of people who were white women um, because they were allies um, who were willing to go through active reflection, self-assessment, being aware of their privilege. That was Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colour Network talking about how women of colour have been changing the culture at the Victorian Public Service at the Women's Rights at Work Conference. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We'll be back with our next interview right after these messages. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Joe Terry is a midwife and childbirth educator based in Nam. She's joining us on the show this morning to talk about um, a couple of recent studies into midwifery and childbirth in Australia and how the shortage of midwives and obstetric intervention and violence are impacting birthing people and their babies. Welcome to the show, Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So how long have you been a midwife, Jo? Um, approximately about eight years now, yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit of background um, on the type of work you've been doing? Have you been working, you know, within hospitals or privately or...? Yeah, so I started my midwifery career in, in public hospitals um, and I've worked a little bit in private as well. 
Um, and then as my career developed, I got into childbirth education and then I became a lactation consultant and I worked both um, in public and private hospitals and in the community with those new roles. Yeah. Amazing. So a survey of um, Victorian midwives done at the end of last year found that midwives are leaving the profession due to burnout and unsafe birth conditions in hospitals. Uh, Can you tell us about your experience with this? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, you know, I absolutely loved midwifery and I loved working um, with birthing people. Um, But the system is just incredibly hard to navigate as a midwife. Um, You know, to the point where if you're very sort of passionate about birth and particularly sort of what we would consider normal birth, um, where a woman isn't unwell and she's a low-risk pregnancy, um, that the hospital environment almost makes that um, very hard to hold a space for that. Um, And I think what happens is midwives um, become very disillusioned with the over-medicalisation of what we're doing. And it feels like at times there's sort of this little bit of a battleground going on where you're trying to create this space for a woman to, you know, really, um, or a person to to birth their baby. Um, And then there's just so much going on outside of that space that, that, that can impact that, you know, the very high induction rate. Um... Just the general over medicalization of birth makes it really complicated. And I think what happens is if you just, um, if, you're, if you're open and passionate and really trying to, to make that happen, eventually I think a lot of us just get a little bit worn down um, with the system, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Australia's largest study of women's birth experiences last year found that women are experiencing obstetric violence during childbirth. Could you explain to our listeners what this is and tell us your thoughts about it? I guess um, my main um, understanding of it is um, when, when things are done um, to people birthing without their consent um, or, you know, perhaps a procedure is happening and the person wants the procedure to stop and... Um, you know, any care provider just keeps going with that procedure. So perhaps something like, um, I call them surgical exams, but they're called vaginal exams. Um, you know, perhaps a woman is, is receiving a vaginal exam and, you know, she asks somebody to stop and, and they don't, they keep going. Um, you know, because they obviously have their concerns about the baby or the progress of the labour. Um, and, you know, it, it was, it's such a hard read and, and that one in ten Australian women are experiencing this. Um, I think I saw a little bit of it early on in my career, but I think as a midwife you learn to um, really protect. You know, you become quite fierce for the, for the women in your care um, and protect that space for them. But, you know, it's extremely disturbing. Um, mm. Yeah, you've mentioned, um, you know, the induction rates are quite high and, you know, have gotten higher in the time that you've been working as a midwife. And you've also touched on coercion. Um, Why do you think this is happening? You know, why do you think that the induction rates are so high and that um, it's it's becoming more rare to gain consent from women before performing these procedures? (coughs) Yeah, look... um 
it, oh, when you're in the system, it, it, it feels very, um, you know, very overwhelming. Like it's just kind of happening all the time, every day. Um, particularly this this rise in induction, and I don't I don't really know why it's happening except that you know Western medicine is a is a risk based way of approaching things. Um, and even you know when the evidence is there that these women maybe shouldn't be induced. Um, it's still happening, and I think in large organisations, um, real change like that feels almost impossible at times. There's lots of you know midwives and doctors working on research and trying to change that, but it, it just feels it feels it feels enormous. I think, um, and I think I don't really understand why in women's health it, it's somehow acceptable. I mean, you, you would think when this article came out that, you know, there would be a major inquiry into this. I mean, it's shocking. But I guess it's like a lot of the the violent statistics in Australia against women. Um, It's prevalent, isn't it? It is, yeah. We cover a lot of similar issues um, on our show particularly and, you know, across Mm -hmm. 3CR in general. And we just find again and again that anything to do with women's health, it's just so hard to get... Um, you know, people to take it seriously to actually rally for any real change, even when there's so much evidence and so many studies to actually, you know, there's there's so much out there saying that this is not the best way to do anything. Women are saying it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's across the board. You're right. I know, and it's you know, it's pregnancy and um, having babies. It's, it's potentially one of the most powerful and life transforming experiences, and yet you're having to navigate this system that, um, you know, sometimes treats women like naughty children or something. (laughs) Um, It's quite bizarre to witness, and I think that is part of the burnout as well, is that when you're in it, it feels like, well, how can I, I, you know, prevent it in in my room and what's happening in my clinical space? Um, And then, you know, what about all the other rooms in in that building? Like, what's happening? Yeah, and it becomes... Um, it actually becomes quite traumatic for, for the healthcare providers that are, that are not wanting to be a part of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's trauma across the board for the, for, um, the healthcare providers, for the women, for the families, for the babies. Um, absolutely. And yeah, given these studies, it feels like, you know, th- there are other ways um, and we just need to change the way we think about childbirth within the system. Um, you're, of course, a childbirth educator. What are some of the ways that, you know, one of the, you touched on earlier, you know, women are navigating a lot when they're pregnant and having a baby. Um, you know, what are some things that you generally teach in your classes to help women navigate? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the fundamental thing for me is just teaching the absolute um, in, in, incredible connection between mum and baby in both pregnancy, labour, birth and breastfeeding. Um, really understanding what's happening in our body. Um, and I think once you lay that foundation for people, it's quite extraordinary. And I think for some reason we kind of don't seem to learn it growing up. I'm not sure what. Um, but it really is the most, you know, even a cervix dilating and opening and going up into the uterus. I mean, it's an, it's an extraordinary thing. And I think once you sort of give people some information about that, you, you portray kind of what, 
is possible for a lot of women in terms of birthing their babies. Um, and then well, if that's what you want, this is how you, you go about navigating the system. Um, and I think that is a big part of, of what I do. Well, what would you like and how are we going to get you there? Absolutely. Um, and what advice would you give to women and birthing people? Um, how can they become more aware of their options and mm-hmm. you know, feel informed mm-hmm. and empowered to make the right choice for themselves? Yeah, look, I think in many ways statistics in this sense do really speak for themselves. I think when you're first pregnant or you're having a you know, subsequent pregnancy, I think it's really important to really look at the care types that you've chosen. Um, so we know, for example, um, caseload midwifery, where you know your midwife, we know, um, or having a known um, support person, um, doubles your chances of what we call, you know, a normal vaginal birth. Um, whereas we know that if you choose a, another type of care, you've got a, you know, a relatively high chance of an emergency cesarean. Um, so sometimes I say get be really clear when you're choosing, you know, a hospital or a particular um, care program to find out, you know, what their philosophy is and what sort of birth you're wanting to have. Are they able to actually support that for you in a real way? Um, You know, I'm finding a lot of women do choose private care and at the beginning of their pregnancy, it's like, yes, yes, we can do this, we can do this. And then towards the end of the pregnancy, the relationship shifts and actually, well... We now consider you high risk or there's a problem or now we're going to have to do an induction. Um, but if perhaps you question the, their statistics at the start, you know, how many of you birth for this, this and this, um, then you're going to kind of know, you know, how this might pan out. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, just like having that information and having the kind of confidence to know that you can make the choice, um, I think that yeah. makes a huge difference as well. And that concept that, you know, just because you walk into one of these buildings, you don't have to hand your power over. Yeah. Um, I, I hear a lot of people say to me, oh, the, the, the midwives and doctors are the experts, so I'll just let them decide. Um, and I think your baby and you are actually the expert, and these people are just assisting you. And assisting you if things don't go according to plan, and there is something, um, you know, high risk, of course, then we really highly value these skills that these people have. But on the outset, I think there has to be this understanding of partnership, that this is actually a partnership that we're working in. Um, It's not their baby, it's not their body, it's actually yours, your baby. That's actually a really nice way of describing it as a partnership. Um, You know, they're there to assist you and you know your body. Uh, Exactly. I mean, I always trust a, a pregnant person when they say, you know, something's up or, no, actually I feel like this is all going pretty well. Um, there's a, there's an instinct there, and I actually think birth is a is a brilliant way to really hone that instinct about your baby as well. And I think as a lactation consultant, one of the hardest things to see is perhaps someone who hasn't had a great birth experience and what it does to their sort of internal navigation system around their baby and making decisions for their baby. Um, you know, it, it, birth has the potential to be this incredible experience in terms of, you know, particularly your first baby going from that sort of maiden to mother um, and really finding that that place in you that knows how to make good decisions for your children. 
Absolutely. Um, Joe, we're actually running out of time this morning. Um, <laughs> but if, um, if our listeners do want to know more and follow you, mm-hmm. where can they follow? Yeah, so my website is melbournemidwife.com.au. Um, 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 the generation where I can't remember my... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll link to it in our show notes later today. Um, I just realised I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone listening, if you are interested, we will Melbourne put these links. Life. Yeah, Melbourne Midwife, that's it. Yeah, um, but thank you so much for your time this morning and for talking us through this very important issue. You're really welcome. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. So that was midwife and childbirth educator Joe Terry talking to us about the impact of midwife shortages and medical intervention on birthing people. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short from my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the release of more than a million tonnes of water from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant will begin in the northern spring or summer. We're going to play you a speech given by Ruiko Muto from Koreyumi at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which occurred on the 17th of December last year. The forum was organised by Citizens Conference to condemn further pollution of the ocean. Ruko talks about the Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, and how they're dealing with wastewater from Fukushima, uh, from the Fukushima nuclear accident. She addresses the government's plan to release the radioactive wastewater into the ocean and gives an interesting and horrifying history of their actions so far. My name is Ruiko Muto of Citizens Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean, Koreumi. Koreumi, our organisation, has been working since 2014 out of a concern about radioactive substances flowing into the ocean and a desire not to pollute the oceans with radiation radioactivity any further. Today, I am, and I guess we are, very pleased and grateful to have this opportunity to hear from Mulan Andrew, from MISA for the Pacific Marshall Island Student Association, Tsukuru Force, Pacific Asian Nuclear Free Peace Alliance, and Dr. Arjun Makijani from the U.S. Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. The Earth is called a water planet. Life on Earth would not be possible without the oceans. We humans have polluted the oceans with various chemical substances, the atomic bombs, nuclear testing, nuclear facilities, and accidents at nuclear power plants have also caused a great deal of radioactive pollution. And now we are deliberately releasing even more radioactive substances into the oceans. We are very sorry and distressed that Fukushima which caused the nuclear accident and spread so much pollution to the oceans already, is now discharging even more into the world's oceans. The oceans connect the world, and the oceans are the common property of all living creatures on Earth. The oceans provide us with so much, and we cannot allow them to become even more polluted. 
I sincerely hope that today's forum will be a meaningful gathering to share wisdom and join forces with you to stop the deliberate discharge of Alps-treated contaminated water stored at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the ocean and to prevent further pollution of the world's common property, the ocean. Now, to begin with, the issue of contaminated water began in the very first place when the coastal cliffs were cut down by 20 meters to build the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. When the ground was dug down, the stream was cut and the underground water vein was cut, causing about 800 tons of groundwater to flow into the site per day. This was pumped up by wells called the subdrains and dumped into the ocean, but the earthquake and tsunami destroyed the subdrains, and the groundwater that flowed into the buildings together with rainwater and water injected to cool the reactors came into contact with the melted-down nuclear fuel, generating vast amounts of radioactive contaminated water. Even after the accident, some 400 tons per day of groundwater continued to flow into the site. As a measure to stop the groundwater from flowing in, the government and TEPCO implemented a measure called a frozen soil wall. In fact, in June of 2012, a decision was almost taken to build a landside barrier wall using clay walls, but this was abandoned before TEPCO's shareholders meeting because the company was unable to announce a huge cost to the shareholders. It was then decided to invest 34.5 billion yen of taxpayers' money for a frozen soil wall, as this option would allow the government to use its research and development funds and eliminate TEPCO's cost burden. However, the frozen soil wall was incomplete, imperfect, and could not stop groundwater. And even now, 140 tons of water per day is flowing into the buildings. The service life of the frozen soil wall is set to be seven years, and the deadline really is approaching. In addition, the electricity cost to freeze the water is 1 billion yen per year. So measures against groundwater must be fundamentally reconsidered. With regard to the Alps-treated contaminated water that continues to accumulate, the government's Contaminated Water Treatment Committee established a tritium water task force to consider five options, geological injection, oceanic discharge, steam discharge, hydrogen discharge, and underground burial. Following this, the Subcommittee on Handling of Treated Water from Multinuclear Removal Facilities was established to examine the issue from a social perspective, including reputational damage. At the explanation in public hearing on handling of treated water from multinuclear removal facilities held by the Subcommittee in 2018 at two locations in Fukushima Prefecture and in Tokyo, there were 44 public speakers who expressed their opinions. And of 44, 42 wanted onshore storage instead of discharge into the environment, into the ocean. However, in February of 2020, the subcommittee submitted a report to the state, the government, which stated that the release of water vapor into the atmosphere and the release of contaminated water into the ocean are realistic, with the release to the oceans being more feasible adding that measures against harmful rumors should be implemented. The Ministry of Economic Trade and Industry, METI, called for public comments between April and July 2020, and many of the more than 4,000 public comments submitted were against the release of contaminated water into the ocean. 
the Fukushima Prefecture Federation of Fishermen's Cooperative Associations and the National Federation of Fishermen's Cooperative Associations have adopted a resolution against the project and the agriculture, forestry, fisheries, tourism, and consumer organizations in Fukushima Prefecture are also against it. In addition, 70% of the municipal councils in Fukushima Prefecture have issued a statement of opinion either against the government or for more caution at least. However, on April 13, 2021, without any parliamentary debate, the government decided on a policy to release the contaminated water into the ocean at a meeting of relevant government ministers. The government did not consult neighboring countries connected by the sea or listen to the concerns and protests voiced by other countries. In 2015, Meti and TEPCO made a written commitment with the Fukushima Fisheries Federation that they would not take any action without the understanding of the concerned parties. We have asked TEPCO and Meti in various platforms, how do you define understanding? And who are the parties concerned? But they simply repeat, we'll persistently fulfill our accountability so that we can gain your understanding. But what they mean by understanding is a situation where residents, without complaining, just follow the decision or agree to the decision of TEPCO and the government about the release of contaminated water into the ocean. Before the release, the Ministry of Economic Trade and Industry, METI and TEPCO, have been frantically advertising and giving lectures at schools and other places, but they are giving fraudulent explanations by placing a measuring device that can only measure gamma radiation against a bottle containing tritium which emits better radiation, and showing how the needle does not react to reassure the public. We have repeatedly asked TEPCO and METI to stop this kind of practice that makes fun of citizens and high school students, but they show no sign of stopping. Disposal of contaminated water has been promoted from the outset with a claim that it's essential for the smooth implementation of decommissioning. The logic used is that decommissioning equals reconstruction of Fukushima and is thirst for the benefit of the victims of Fukushima, but TEPCO and the government only provide explanations to the local government councils and organizations they have intentionally selected, and they do not themselves hold meetings to explain and discuss the situation with the local public. From December 13, METI awarded Dentsu 1.2 billion yen order to carry out a nationwide publicity campaign called the Project for Activities to Foster Public Understanding of Alps Treated Water and Other Related Activities. This includes TV programs, commercials, newspaper ads, web ads, outdoor and traffic ads. The slogan is, let's know it together, let's think about Alps Treated Water together. This is to promote reconstruction to prevent reputational damage. This is what they say in this huge promotion campaign. Other pamphlets and videos have also been produced and symposia and seminars have been organized. Alps treated contaminated water contains 860 trillion becquerels of tritium, which is difficult to separate from water. Tritium is sometimes said not to be a problem because it only emits low energy beta rays, but it has been pointed out that when combined with organic matter, it enters the body and can enter cells and DNA, causing damage to surrounding cells. And it's not only tritium that's in the water. Although TEPCO claims to have removed 62 nuclides, nearly 70% of the water stored in the tanks exceeded standards for radioactive substances other than tritium. This fact was revealed by media reports. Until then, TEPCO had explained that all but tritium was within standards. 
The other substances that were found to have exceeded the standard were strontium-90, which tends to accumulate in bones, and iodine-129, which has a half-life of 15.7 million years. It is unclear whether these will be removed reliably in the secondary treatment. PEPCO has stated that the ALPS-treated contaminated water will be diluted with seawater after secondary treatment and discharged into the sea over 30 years. But as there are no restrictions on the total amount of water that can be diluted, it will eventually all be discharged into the ocean. Several alternatives have been put forward by the public. These include sequential transfer to large, robust tanks, which have already been proven to work, or storage on land using mortar solidification. There is also a proposal to build a large-scale underground barrier to fundamentally stop the generation of groundwater, which has also been proven to work. But there is no indication that either this government or TEPCO are discussing these alternatives. During this period, we citizens have acted in various ways to stop the discharge of contaminated water into the ocean. These include negotiations with TEPCO, town meetings in various parts of the prefectures, petitions to the governor of Fukushima Prefecture, the Fukushima Prefectural Assembly, and local authorities, and standing in the streets also. We have also invited TEPCO and METI to exchange opinions with us on four occasions. We are now promoting an action to send postcards to the governor of Fukushima Prefecture and the mayors of Okuma and Futaba, appealing to them not to discharge waste into the ocean. We are doing our best to persistently do all we can do. TEPCO has dug 80% of the tunnels for the water release and seems to be steadily advancing the construction of the discharge outlet, but it's definitely behind their original plan. I think that the fishermen, our citizens, and the opposing municipalities may be putting the brakes on the project, even if it's the effect is somewhat. We are not going to give up and we are going to do the best we can. That's all from me. Thank you very much. That was Ruiko Muto speaking at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which occurred in December of last year. We've come to the end of our show for today. So just to summarise what we heard on today's show, Ivka? We shared some excerpts from the Women's Rights at Work conference held at the end of 2022. We heard from Hsang Jiang from the Migrant Workers Centre and from Jamad Hersey from the Women of Colour Network. We spoke with Dr. Sonia Srinivasan, who is an academic GP registrar, who spoke to us about the research that she conducted um, into uh, the availability of um, abortion advice and services in the public system um, and the limitations that are currently in our healthcare system here in Australia. We then spoke with midwife and childbirth educator Joe Terry about um, the shortage of midwives and obstetric intervention and violence impacting women and birthing people. And we just finished off with a speech from Rui Komuto at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum. So that's all we have time for on today's show. Um, make sure you stay tuned up next. We've got uh, Accent of Women. And yeah, we'll see you all next Tuesday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. 
While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.